1: Hello, I'm Nicole Holliday, a linguistics professor at the University of Pennsylvania.
0: And I'm Ben Zimmer, language columnist for the Wall Street Journal.
1: And this is Spectacular Vernacular, a podcast where we not only explore language,
0: we also play with it.
1: This week, our guest is Ann Friedman, the founder of Planet Word, a museum in Washington, D.C. devoted to words and language. And later, we'll challenge a listener with some cinematic wordplay.
0: Well, we have to start off the episode with some bad news, I'm afraid. Nicole and I have had a lot of fun since launching this podcast last year, bringing you all the latest in the world of language. But unfortunately, this will be the final episode of Spectacular Vernacular that we're doing for Slate.
1: Yeah, it's bittersweet because although we're sad about the end of the podcast, we've really enjoyed this whole experience. It's been such a blast, and we've managed to cover so many linguistic topics—from serious ones to more lighthearted ones.
0: It's been great exploring so many different languagey subjects. You know, just looking back on what we've covered. I mean, we've talked about everything from. Uh, The subtitles on Squid Game to uh, Dr. Fauci's Brooklyn accent to the voices of Siri to the linguistic quandaries of Taylor Swift lyrics.
1: And of course, as we've said every week, we not only explore language, we also play with it. So we've had a lot of fun bringing on listeners and other guests to face wordplay challenges. And a special shout out to our fellow Slate podcasters for being such good sports and coming on for our wordplay quizzes.
0: Yeah, you know, while we're doing shout outs, we also want to thank the whole Slate podcast team, past and present, for being so supportive. And over the time, we've been making Spectacular Vernacular. There have been a lot, of, a lot of folks pitching in. So we just wanted to say, you know, special thanks to uh, Gabriel Roth, uh, Asha Saluja, Shana Roth, and June Thomas. They've all been tremendously helpful in putting the show together.
1: And last but certainly not least, Jasmine Ellis has been our rock star producer. Jasmine, you've been so instrumental in recording and editing the podcast. I know you usually prefer to stay behind the scenes, but can we embarrass you and ask you to say hi? Hi, everyone. I'm
2: Jasmine. It's been a pleasure being the producer for Spectacular Vernacular. Nicole and Ben are awesome. And sure, for our, our last episode, I'll be on mic.
0: Okay, we, we appreciate that very much. So Jasmine, while we have you, we thought we would play a little game called Name That Guest. Um, We've had so many wonderful and insightful guests on Spectacular Vernacular, and I understand you've got some audio clips uh, of some of our favorites from episodes past.
2: I do. How do you feel about putting your knowledge of our previous guests to the task, I guess?
1: Oh my gosh, I get quizzed so often on this podcast. (laughs) I'm never ready. But hopefully we can remember everyone. Jasmine, who do you have for us? Okay, so here is your first clip. But what I really
3: discovered was that what people wanted to talk to me about were their identities of place and race and what it meant to them to be Black people situated in a neighborhood that was historically Black.
1: Oh, that one wasn't so long ago. I remember. That's Dr. Jessie Greaser talking about her book, The Black Side of the River. Awesome. You got it. All right. Here's our second one.
3: Uh, With mothers and daughters, the biggest complaint of daughters was my mother's critical, And the biggest complaint of mothers was, I can't open my mouth. She takes everything as criticism. And that was kind of emblematic because, and this is, I think, kind of linguistics, that people tend to think words can only mean one thing.
0: Oh, that's got to be none other than Deborah Tannen. Uh, We had her on talking about conversational style and, you know, all the different, you know, styles that people use and interactions in that clip, I guess, talking about mothers and daughters. So she was a wonderful guest.
1: I love talking to Deborah Tannen. Like, she's, you know, kind of one of the most famous uh, sociolinguists that, that makes the rounds. And so I was so happy that we were able to talk to her. That was one of my favorites. All right. And so let's go to our third clip. It's so rewarding. It is exhilarating to be able to hear from so many people, people with all sorts of walks of life.
0: People with all sorts of different affinities for word games or puzzles in general. It's the grid kid, right? Sam Zersky, who's one of the puzzle editors at the New York Times and is the one who's responsible for the New York Times spelling bee. He just had so much enthusiasm for his work. It was it was wonderful having him on, as well as some of the other kind of puzzle people that we've had on, like uh, Will Shorts and others who've who've come and, and joined us to talk about word puzzles.
1: We've run through the, the Times <laughs> Games folks, as well as other puzzle people, but Sam Mazursky was so great to talk to. All right, Jasmine, what do you have for us next? You know, black ASL users, they may tend to use more two-handed signs than one-handed signs. They can sometimes place signs around more of the, the forehead area rather than their lower body. Um, and they tend to sometimes emote more and also use a larger signing space. That's journalist Allison Waller talking about um, the piece that she wrote about black ASL users online. That was such an interesting conversation to have with her because ASL, signed languages in general, but especially black users of signed languages usually don't get a lot of um, recognition in the public or even in the linguistic literature. So it was great to sort of see what she had learned from talking to folks in that community.
0: Yeah, and just uh, at the Linguistic Society of America annual meeting this past January, um, Allison was given the Linguistics Journalism Award for that fantastic piece she wrote for the New York Times on Black ASL.
2: Okay, and here is our final one.
0: It's a kind of weird, rarefied pleasure to just find out about culture through language, I guess, is part of it, right? That's one of the reasons for studying languages. You you learn all this stuff about people and cultures that you didn't know before, and it just makes your brain expand in a, in a fun, cool way.
1: Oh, that's from our first episode.
0: John Linnell of They Might Be Giants was our very first guest on the show. He had just come out with an EP, I believe it was called Roman Songs. He compose these songs in latin after learning latin on duolingo uh, during the pandemic wonderful first guest to sort of kick things off for us
1: yeah and like you know a certified rock star <laughs> which is pretty cool for us
0: well jasmine thank you so much for that trip down memory lane and thanks to all of our guests for sharing their insights and experiences from so many different corners of the language world
1: After the break, we welcome one more guest, Anne Friedman, the founder and CEO of Washington, D.C.'s new language museum, Planet Word.
0: If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, You can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA.
1: Welcome back to Spectacular Vernacular. Our guest today is the founder and CEO of Planet Word, Anne Friedman. Prior to opening the museum in 2021, Anne worked as a reading and writing teacher, and her passion for language has been evident throughout her career. Ben and I both had the pleasure of visiting Planet Word in D.C. in conjunction with the National Puzzlers League convention last summer, so we're excited to get to talk to Anne about it. Welcome to the show, Anne.
2: Thank you. It's great to be with you both.
1: Yeah, so I'm sure a lot of our audience is familiar with the many, many D.C. museums that are out there, but since Planet Word is kind of a new kid on the block, could you tell us what the museum is like and what its mission is?
2: Certainly. There are a lot of museums in Washington, D.C. And uh, the reason for Planet Word is because I thought there was a gaping hole. No museum dedicated to words and language uh, among all these great national treasures and storehouses. But Planet Word is a museum without a collection. So it is different in that way. It is a museum built on ideas and concepts. And we use technology and participation to bring our subject words and language to life. So we are in a National Historic Landmark building. And that adds to the visitor's experience. It's a really beautiful building that was shuttered and abandoned really for 10 years. I restored it and renovated it and it is now a beautiful home for the museum. So lots of people just also want to see what this beautiful landmark building in Washington is like inside.
0: Yeah, it's a really great space. The Franklin School, right, is the historic building that you've you've turned into this modern museum full of high-tech interactive displays, right?
2: Yeah, so it's... Um, you know, sort of counterintuitive that in this really old 152-year-old building, we could happily house a 21st century museum. And
0: the museum's really chock full of unique representations of, of how language works, how it evolves, all of these interactive voice-activated displays and really great exhibits. And one of the coolest ones is the Word Wall. That may be my favorite. Could you describe for our listeners who haven't had a chance to visit what the Word Wall is all about?
2: So the Word Wall is sort of a talking dictionary. It's in a gallery called Where Do Words Come From? And it's about the origins of words in the English language. And it is a three-dimensional, 22-foot-high 40 foot wide word wall. there are three-dimensional words stacked on top of each other and they come to life. There is a, a narrator. It's sort of a sound and light experience. I guess if, if you wanted to compare it to anything, I would say that's what it is. We identified a list of about 28 ways that words entered the English language. And for the experience, we had to whittle that down to approximately eight main ways that words enter English. So, you know, in a dictionary, people see the etymology of every word that they look up, um, and we have turned that into a participatory, voice-activated experience um, where you hear stories about all sorts of words that have entered English and have been, you know, incorporated into our lexicon. So maybe they came in because of war and conquest. Uh, Maybe we borrowed them from other countries and languages. Maybe they're inventions, but uh, the visitor gets to choose the words that they hear about the origins of. And it's really fun. Visitors are shouting out their choices into the microphones and the uh, voice recognition technology picks up what they say. And the story that the narrator tells is based on what the software picks up from the visitor's so it's a non linear experience. You
0: know? I should say, full disclosure, because I serve on the Planet Word Advisory Board, I actually got to contribute some of my favorite words to this enormous wall of words. So if visitors uh, look around on the word wall and see words like, I don't know, horn swaggle or obsquatulate, they'll, they'll know where that came from. <laughs>
1: We can blame Ben. Another piece of the museum I really liked is the karaoke section, but it's not just a regular old karaoke session. What do you think visitors can learn about language and music from singing in front of friends and strangers?
2: What we've done is we picked 23 songs and licensed the lyrics and and the music, and they are projected on a on a screen just like in a normal karaoke uh, experience in a lounge or bar, but what we've done that's different and unique to Planet Word is that we highlight with color-coded underlining the techniques that the songwriter used, and hope that our visitors, besides singing along and reading the the words, will also read the annotations that talk about end rhyme or you know alliteration, all the techniques that the songwriters used to make these songs work and be memorable. And um, we tried to find songs that had diversity in numerous respects, like the era that they were written. Is it sung by um, a man or a woman? Is it rap? Is it uh, country Western? So we tried to find songs that, Would appeal to as wide a range of visitors as possible. But they also had to illustrate varying techniques of songwriting. So, you know, we couldn't have every song just show and rhyme, that would be really boring. So we have, you know, all sorts of techniques that are illustrated.
1: One really interesting aspect of Planet Word is also how much the museum is interested in collecting the stories from the folks from around the world who visit. Can you tell us a bit about the more interactive pieces of the museum where people can tell their stories and what you think we can learn from what the visitors share and how that might be incorporated into future exhibits?
2: That was always a really important aspect of the museum for me. I thought if visitors go through the whole museum and hear all about language and words. And then in our gallery called Words Matter, which is the last one that visitors usually come to, they will hear other people's stories and then be inspired to tell their own. And so uh, that Words Matter gallery has a recording booth in the center of it where visitors can tell their own Word story, and it's recorded, and they can receive a copy of the recording. We haven't yet figured out how we'll curate all the stories that are told, but they are tagged with the subject. So we can, you know, sort them into is it a a story about family, or is it a story about pets, or, you know, just what is the theme of that story about words and language? So that's the main way. That people can can tell their own story, but there are two others. We have a data visualization artwork installation in our museum, and it's called Multilingual. And there, people can enter the languages they speak. We have a database of eight thousand spoken languages, and uh, they're very. Exacting in particular, you know, not just French, but which type of French from where, for instance. And then they also can type in where they live. And then whatever they've uh, typed in about the languages they speak or sign are added to a beautiful artwork that grows and changes depending on what people type in. And why that's important is because I thought, well, lots of people are going to come to the museum and learn and, and take away. But I wanted people also to leave a little bit of themselves at the museum. And so um, that's one way. And another way that we're doing that is starting this summer, we have a group of uh, researchers and professors from area universities Who are starting a language lab at the museum? And visitors will be able to participate in some of the research that they're doing right here at the museum. You know, another reason why I wanted to have those experiences where you leave something is because I want everyone to feel like they were seen and their language was appreciated. At planet word, but we only have so much space. So we couldn't touch on all those, you know, spoken and signed languages, only a very small handful of them. And I didn't want people to feel disregarded and um, unseen and unheard. So I thought that these little activities were one way that people could feel that they were important and what they had to say about language And their
0: culture was important, too. So, Anne, as a fan of word puzzles, I have to ask about the latest exhibit to open at Planet Word, and that is called Lexicon Lane. And I believe that's just opening to the public this week. Uh, The museum website calls it a charming village full of wordplay surprises. Could you tell us a bit about what visitors can expect from this puzzling experience at Lexicon Lane?
2: There's so much technology used in the rest of the museum that for this gallery, which is a paid exhibit space, we were really attracted by the idea of making it an analog gallery where there's no technology. People are using pencil and paper. The gallery is built out like a little village with shop fronts and an arboretum and an apothecary and visitors can rent one of 26 and that number is significant 26 cases and each case contains four to six or more word puzzles inside and they all are themed so if for the letter a for instance the case is an astronaut helmet and all the puzzles inside are word puzzles about space and constellations and astronomy. And the puzzles also send people, besides, you know, you're solving things on paper with the pencil, they might be sending you to the little shops in this very beautiful village where we have clues and all sorts of things on the walls that help you solve those puzzles. And it's very different. I guess I'd compare it at most to maybe an escape room kind of experience, but you don't have to escape. You just have to try and solve the word puzzles.
0: I got to play around with a couple of uh, prototypes of those puzzle cases. And I can tell it's going to be a lot of fun for visitors. Uh, You mentioned it's a paid space, but we should make it clear. Other than that, this is a free museum, right?
2: Yes. Other than that, it's a free museum unless you want to go in our gift shop and buy something.
1: (laughs) Well, I did not get the pleasure of really seeing the puzzles in Lexicon Lane, so I'm going to have to go back. Anne Friedman, thanks so much for joining us today and telling our listeners more about Planet Word. Thank you for inviting me to be on your final
2: podcast. It was my pleasure and an honor.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And I'm sure everyone will take the opportunity to visit Planet Word next time they're in D.C. After the break, it's time for some wordplay.
0: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome back. Now it's the time in the show where we play with language.
1: For our wordplay quiz this week, we're very pleased to be joined by listener Miecha Doherty of Belfast, Northern Ireland. Welcome to the show, Miecha.
0: Thank you very
3: much. It's lovely to talk to you.
0: Well, it's great that you're joining us from Belfast, or at least near Belfast. Is that right? That's right. I'm in a little place called Carmony, just north of Belfast. Okay. Well, you know, movie audiences have been getting a bit of a history lesson about that region and that city in particular, Thanks to Kenneth Branagh's semi-autobiographical film, Belfast, which got lots of nominations at the Oscars and the BAFTAs, the uh, British version of the Oscars. That movie portrays the turbulent late 1960s in Belfast through a child's eyes. You know
3: who you are? Your buddy from Belfast. Where everybody knows you.
0: So, Misha, have you had a chance to see the movie? Well, I haven't seen it yet, I'm afraid.
3: Um... I'm looking forward to it, but um, I'm still a little bit wary about going out to public spaces, uh, so I haven't been to the cinema. I'll watch it on streaming.
1: The movie Belfast got us thinking about other cinematic cities, so for the quiz we have for you, you'll need to come up with the names of major cities that are also movie titles like Belfast.
0: Okay. Yeah, and of course, we'll be adding an element of wordplay, because, you know, we always have to have the wordplay in there. We're going to give you a word... And you'll have to remove a letter and anagram the rest to get a cinematic city. So, for instance, if we gave you the word flatbeds, F-L-A-T-B-E-D-S, and told you to remove a letter and anagram the rest, then that would lead you to... Belfast, yes. There you go. That has the letters of flatbeds minus the D, if you rearrange those letters. And don't worry, we'll give you hints about the movies if you need them. How does that sound? Okay, that sounds fine.
1: All right, so let's get started with your first one. Take the word sample, remove a letter, and anagram the rest, and you get a 2014 historical drama.
3: Sample. I think we want to take away the P and rearrange the rest to get Selma.
1: Yes, very good. So, yeah, that movie, Selma, stars David Oyelowo as Martin Luther King Jr., and, of course, Selma is the city in Alabama, um, and it tells the story of Dr. King's campaign for voting rights in 1965 with the march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. Great job. That was so quick.
0: Okay. Well, let's do the next one then. Take the word forage, F O R A G E, remove a letter and anagram the rest, and you'll get a dark comedy from
3: 1996. Okay. I'm working backwards from this uh, because I think I know the film, so now I need to reverse engineer the anagram and take uh, the E out of Forage and swap it around to get Fargo.
0: Fargo is correct. That's right. Fargo is, of course, a a city in North Dakota, um, and that's the great Coen Brothers movie. Uh, They won an Oscar for their screenplay, and Frances McDormand won an Oscar for her acting performance. And, of course, there's also a television series called Fargo that takes place in the same fictional universe as the movie, But a lot of the action in both the movie and the TV series actually takes place in Minnesota, not actually the title city of Fargo, North Dakota.
1: All right, so here's your next one. Take the word coaching, remove a letter and anagram the rest, and you'll get a movie musical from 2002.
3: Okay. And a musical... is Chicago.
1: Yes, very good. So Chicago uh, won the Oscar for Best Picture and Catherine Zeta-Jones won for Best Supporting Actress. So if you remove the N from coaching, you get Chicago. In that movie, Catherine Zeta-Jones plays Vilma Kelly and Renee Zellweger plays Roxy Hart. And they're on trial for a murder in Chicago in the 1920s. Uh, The movie is based on a stage musical, which was itself based on another movie, also called Chicago, from way back in 1927.
0: Okay, so far we've been a bit uh, US-centric with our cinematic cities, right? We've had uh, Selma and Fargo and Chicago. So let's get a little more international. Take the word realigns, that's R-E-A-L-I-G-N-S, remove a letter and anagram the rest, and you'll get a 1938 film about a notorious thief.
3: Nothing is leaping out to me, to be honest. We're talking about an American film or an English language film, anyway.
0: Yes, but it's the film stars. I can tell you, Charles Boyer as a jewel thief who escapes from France and hides out in the Casbah. That oh, might help you. Come with me to the Casbah. I've heard that exactly. line. But what's the name of the film? Well, where is the kasbah? I can't remember. <laughs> Sorry. Well, it's in a, a capital city in northern Africa. Tangiers was what I was thinking, but that that doesn't work for the anagram. You're in the right general uh, place, but we're oh, all Algiers. Algiers is right. That's right. Remove the N from realigns to get Algiers, and the kasbah is the traditional quarter in the city of Algiers, the capital of Algeria. And you know, you just said, "Come with me to the kasbah," which is. A line that does not actually appear in the movie. It's one of those played against them lines. It was done by people impersonating Boye. Right. Another fun fact about the movie is that Boye's character is named Pepe Lemoco, and that inspired the Looney Tunes character Pepe Le Pew, the uh, romantic skunk.
1: I wondered where that came from. <laughs> All right. So we've got one more for you. I think it's also a little tough. Take the word bacchanalias. So. B A C C H A N A L I A S. Bacchanalias. Back in alias. Remove two letters and anagram the rest, and you will get a classic 1942 romantic drama.
3: Well, no, I'm gonna need a hint or two, I think.
1: So, this movie won the Oscar for Best Picture and also got acting nominations for Humphrey Bogart and Claude Rains. But oh! Ingrid Bergman did not get nominated.
3: So, we're gonna take away an H and something else, and we're gonna get Casablanca.
1: Yes, so you take away the H and the I, and you get Casablanca, which is, of course, set in the Moroccan city of Casablanca during World War II. Coincidentally enough, the movie we were just talking about, Algiers, helped to inspire Casablanca. The filmmakers originally wanted one of the stars of Algiers, Hedy Lamarr, to play Ilsa, but instead they got Ingrid Bergman.
0: Misha, you did a great job, and we're also very pleased to announce the winner of the challenge from our March 15th episode, Nick Anand of Toronto, Canada, figured out the answer to the question posed by Will Shorts. The two languages that differ only by the letters P and V in the third position are Japanese and Javanese. Congratulations, Nick.
1: And thanks for joining us, Misha.
0: Thank you very much. It was great
1: fun. That's all from us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like full access to all the articles on Slate.com, zero ads on any Slate podcast, and bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and One Year. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Plus.
0: Thanks again to Ann Friedman for being our guest this week. Spectacular Vernacular is produced by Jasmine Ellis, June Thomas is Senior Managing Producer for Slate Podcasts.
1: Well, Ben, it's been so fun working with you on this podcast, and I'm glad that we got to talk to so many great guests and do so much fun wordplay.
0: Yeah, Nicole, it's been such a blast. It's been really just a pleasure working with you and putting out this podcast. And thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you for sticking with us. And to all of our listeners, just keep enjoying language and all of its diversity.